We've been practicing here together now for what seems like quite a while. <laughs> it's interesting how a period of retreat suddenly after some days becomes actually this is just what we do. We turn up, we sit, we walk, we have an occasional conversation if we're on retreat and we quite a few conversations if we're at this end of it. And there's this process of exploring, of discovery, of being moved and touched and opened in so many different ways. And at the really heart of it all, we're coming to understand more deeply and more directly what is true. And we've been reflecting and giving quite some attention in the last couple of days to the ways in which we can start to see the space around our experience we can start to feel the openness in which life unfolds. And as we find, discover, or begin to more and more connect with that sense of space, we can feel a certain easing of constriction, of contraction, of a way in which when we identify or take hold of the particulars of experience, we find ourselves bound to them and limited by them. When we define ourselves in relationship to anything at all in terms of experience, we see, we can start to sense and feel the limiting impact or effect of that way of perceiving. And so we learn to rest more just in the perceiving itself, in the knowing itself, in the spacious, silent, still receptivity that is conscious, it seems, that knows, it seems. And there's the way in which as we do that, it's possible for us to start to feel not just that we are no longer bound in the way we may have imagined ourselves to be by the experiences, no longer defined by the conditions, but we equally can start to notice that the sense of feeling apart from, distant from, or separate from all of this that we are not bound to, that the sense of feeling different from it also starts to soften and begin to fade, or to dissolve, or to start to show itself as simply an appearance of difference, of separateness, of apartness. And so, while in one way we can understand the liberating 
potential of Dharma teachings, of Dharma practices, born out of the understanding that we are not defined by these experiences that pass through the open space of life, because they just pass through and they keep doing so unstoppably. We are not defined by them and there's a freedom in that. And yet, at the same time, this freedom is not apart from them, is not separate from any experience, not separate from the totality of all that is around us. So what does this mean for us to see that we are a part of it all? For myself, my early sense of what I would now call spirituality, I wasn't raised with any religious or um, overt spiritual tradition or orientation, but my, my sense of what I now understand to be spirituality was very much just found in a sensitivity to and a concern for other beings, for life, for, for creatures, for, for the environment. And this was something that was very clear to me from early on. And the sensitivity was, I guess, revealed by the way in which I could feel how I was affected by others. And it wasn't always a pleasant way of being affected, but seeing how one is affected and equally being very aware, as I was, of how I affected others or how I affected, how my actions had an impact in the world or on others, just as the actions and others had an impact on me. And there's the sense of being touched, being impacted, and equally touching and impacting the world. There's this interface that's going on. And, and this very much for me points to our profound relatedness. The fact that we can't extract ourselves from life. We can't define ourselves within it or with any particular part of it, but nor can we stand apart from it, nor can we step away or extract ourselves from the life that is around us because it's constantly touching on us, impinging on us. And we're constantly touching on, impinging on, impacting it, we could say. And so, when thinking of what my first spiritual practice was, it was probably hugging trees. I, my family were pretty early greenies, and I was out there protesting against logging forests before I was in sort of a second half of primary school, which is probably like about, I don't know how the grades work here, but six or seven, I remember, involved in that sort of activity. And I remember spending, and so, so that, sorry, that, 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 so trees, hugging trees. It's like just that sense of, and it sounds a bit flaky, doesn't it? It's not what we do here. <laughs> That's, you know, isn't that what goes on in those sort of rather ungrounded new age spiritual traditions? Not serious, you know, dharma. And yet I do remember, and I've re reconnected on occasion again, with the sense of what it's like to just feel with one's arms around the, the body of a tree, a sense of, of connection, of communion, of oneness with that. 
that for a young person, probably with the right support and guidance, isn't such a strange or unusual. I didn't even think it was anything special. Just, hey, it's nice. Yeah, I like hu hugging people, and I liked hugging trees. <laughs> and somehow it doesn't seem funny. <laughs> and of course it is. And I remember spending, again, before I had any real sense of spirituality in an organized way, I felt this really strong pull to leave what I was doing and try and find something else to make a meaningful life out of what I had. And the, the life that I had working in a high-powered professional office and sort of this commercial heart of Auckland and New Zealand, I, I wasn't happy there and yet I couldn't quite find the way to let myself or to get myself out of it that was the only thing I had in the world, it seemed. There wasn't really anything else there. And yet I knew that's not what I wanted. And I took a couple of days and just went off in my car and drove. And I didn't know where I was going or why, but I ended up in a forest grove in, uh, amongst these incredible trees of what we have in New Zealand, kauri trees, some of which, well, the oldest is uh, recorded at four and a half thousand years old. And, uh, and they're big and they're, they have presence. Um, if you want to practice standing meditation, they're great companions. And I spent the first night I ever spent on my own voluntarily choosing to go out and be by myself, sleeping under the boughs of one of those trees in the, in the forest. And just the sense of support and companionship. I was a confused young man. Boy, I was scared, I was anxious, and yet I didn't quite know what I was looking for, but there was something in that, being there with them that profoundly touched me. And that together with one or two other key catalyzing events, for me felt like it was part of what allowed me to say, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna take a step out of the world that I know and see what else I can find. And that was really the beginning of the, the leaving of that world that led me into the time of traveling into Asia, into the Dharma. And that really, in some ways, at this point, we could say, has got me here. So this experience of the natural world and that sense of what it means to be in contact with it is something that's always been really important for me. Something not necessarily spoken about so much directly in the Buddha's teachings. And yet, it's also very clear that the Buddha's teachings and the practice he offered took place in the natural world. He regularly advised his followers to, he said, there are these roots of trees, there are these rocks, there are these caves. Practice now, lest you later regret it. You know, use this opportunity for practice, he would say. And he was pointing people to the being in the natural world. He never said, go into a nice, comfortable building where you can adjust the thermostat <laughs> and be mindful. That wasn't an instruction I've ever seen in the sutta. Now, maybe if he was alive today, of course he would have. But there's something about, for me, being in the natural world and actually exploring what that means for us in terms of spirituality that's very powerful and, for me, feels very precious. And one of the elements of that that always stands out to me, the, the sense of the what happens to us when we start to take in the 
the vastness of the world around us. You know, when we live within four walls, four walls and ceilings, we kind of feel safe and contained. And there's some, you know, especially when it's cold like today, it's rather nice, sure, not knocking it. But when we go outside, and I was just out now, I went for a little run, feeling my body needed some movement after all the being still. And just looking up at the sky and the stars. And you know what it's like if you just let yourself look into the night sky and there's no moon and it's clear and we're quite a long way from any major light pollution here? Wow, it's amazing. You know, we just take it for granted, we know what that is. It's this vast space. This vast space. And our mind can't really wrap itself around it. We can't really get our head around what it's like out there. We kind of think, oh, it's the sky, or it's the night sky. But it's not, you know. It's something really, really, really big. And even big isn't quite a good enough word, is it? <laughs> but we haven't got anything else. And yet the effect in the mind. There's a, there's a way in which it just sort of if we allow it in, if we let it in, it just sort of stretches or starts to move the boundaries that we place in the way we look, that sort of hold a certain shape and definition to the world, that keep it contained and organized and manageable. It's a bit like, or oh, another way one maybe you could approach this and sense it, and maybe you could imagine this as I speak about it. Maybe you can try it out later, though it's perhaps a little cool here. But imagine you're just lying down on the ground, looking up at the night sky, and it's clear, and the stars are there, and it's sparkling as it does. And then just for imagine a moment, just for a moment imagine, as you're lying there, you can do this now if you like, you're lying there, and just imagine for a moment that in fact you're not looking up at the sky, but in fact you're suspended over it, looking down into it. And from where I come from in New Zealand, this is the bottom of the planet. <laughs> and all of us are here just hanging on, <laughs> hanging out above. And just imagine, it's like, it's really fortunate in a moment like that. You think, wow, it's really fortunate the gravity works. And we just take it for granted most of the time. It's almost only when we sense ourselves hanging over it, we get some sense of, in fact, what we're looking at. Because what we're looking at goes on and on and on. And if gravity wasn't there, the first thing we did if we moved would be to ping off the surface and float out into that big, black, empty space. And the odds of getting to one of those little spots of light, of which there are quite a few, but there's a lot more empty space. The odds are pretty small. And it would take quite a while. <laughs> and again, it's kind of humorous, but what happens if you actually let that, the sense of that in? Isn't it that there's something profoundly humbling to see that we're just this tiny little microcosmic speck of dust here for just almost a blink of the universe's eye. 
and all of our wonderful qualities and all of our struggles and our challenges and all that we call my life in a hundred years from now will just be gone and in 200 years from now we'll probably no one will remember about it or know about it and just poof it's like we're just tiny little dots in the middle of this vast thing something really humbling about that when we see what's here and yet if we start to sense and recognize that we're part of this vastness there's something exhilarating exalting even a sense of wow wow just at the same time as we're not so important here we're part of something that is wow amazing amazing what we are part of And one of the features of something that's that big, the very fact that we can't get our mind around it, we can't stretch our mind out and say, got it, we just can't, is that we can't and we don't judge it or evaluate and decide, well, you know, yeah, the night sky is pretty good, but actually if that constellation would go over there, it would be a lot better. Has anyone ever had that thought? No. I haven't. It's like it's only when we shrink things down, get them inside our little thinking minds, that we start to figure out, well, we can improve this and fix that and that, but it's not okay. When we do that with ourselves, it can be so painful. But we can only really do that if we've somehow separated ourselves from this vastness, this totality, this immensity. And maybe we don't have to do that. Maybe it doesn't make any sense to look at ourselves separate from all of this. Maybe it doesn't have any truth in it to do so. So the world around us can touch us. We can feel in the silence and the stillness as we settle and deepen and connect more and more. It's almost like we, the heart-mind that we've talked about, the citta, this kind of, it's almost like an organ, although it's not really an organ, but this this capacity, this, this capacity that is touched by life and that responds to life, that resonates with life that it's like it almost gets cleansed. It's like its sensitivity becomes enhanced. Or, in fact, it's not being enhanced, it's simply being revealed because we so easily desensitize in our life. That sensitivity through the the cleansing or the the opening of of the heart-mind, the the chitta, the, the, the sort of resonant capacity that we've spoken about, it can be touched by such simple things. Have you noticed how just a single leaf or the light on a crystal of snow or just one of those little red berries on that little branch, on a branch of that little bush tree down there, just suddenly in the light and it glows? It's like, you can sort of, wow, you know, 
And we look around, is anyone watching me? I'm going, wow, what a berry. <laughs> or we just feel just the exquisiteness of a certain contact with something. And it's like the natural world. And when we raise that, when we're touched like that, it's something gets right in to the very core of us, it seems. Like the sense of what most feels interior to us, or what we call most interior, is being touched and affected by something that's out there, or so it seems. Or so we think. So we say. But the very fact that it's out there, and yet, in my heart, it's going, ooh. It's telling us something. It's telling us something. And we can have a sense that somehow we're not, we can't be. How can we be apart from this if it's touching me like that? How can I be apart from that? How can I imagine myself completely separate from something that's moving me in the very core of my being? And equally when we look around us and sometimes we see, and someone taking a really mindful step or a mindful mouthful of food or, or just in the ways we know each other, we start to sense each other. You know, sometimes we walk past one, past another, someone was speaking about this, and we just feel the presence of the person. We don't look at them. We don't even know. Are they man, woman, um, tall, short, this age, that age? We just feel. Whew, we've like whew, been touched. We didn't even look up. Could have been a breeze that went past our cheek, but we know it was a human breeze. And the air was completely still when it happened. So it wasn't a breeze at all, and yet something happened. And so there's this sense of resonance, of touching, of being touched by what's around us that is telling us something. It's speaking to us. It's speaking to us on a level that the mind struggles to articulate, to land, and to organize with. And yet there's a knowing in this. There's a knowingness that's immediate to us. That The deeper knowing of life, and when we are touched by something that's true, it has a very interesting combination of features and that it feels very fresh. When we are touched by something true, it always feels fresh. It's like it's new. It's like it's for the first time. And paradoxically, it equally feels familiar. It's like we recognize it. We might be surprised, but we're almost surprised by the recognition of something when it's true. When it's an insight, we think, oh yeah, I knew that. But suddenly we know it more deeply, and it's fresh. When we feel that resonant contact, it's like, ah, what's true in this that's speaking to us? In the natural world, it, it, it speaks to us of life, of change of birth and death, of coming and going, just as the weather and the seasons cycle through again and again and move on, one into the next. And there's something unstoppable about life. 
about the natural world. I find it I find it really uplifting just to reflect at times on what happens to a piece of concrete or a piece of asphalt. Is that what you call what you put on your roads? Asphalt. Okay. okay. You know what I'm talking about. I call it asphalt where I come from. Um, because sometimes if you look along the edges, you'll see a little blade of grass has just pushed its way through and it's popped up in the midst of that hard, dense, dry, and apparently dead mass of material. It's like something, or if you're looking on sometimes concrete walls, and they might be gray and dull and feel kind of lifeless, even dispiriting sometimes when there's too many of them. And if you see a little flower perched in a crack, and what is that speaking to us? The grass that can... You know, it just comes up in a little space and then it just sort of soft, squishy stuff, grass. It's green and, you know, juicy. And just comes up and it goes, bloop, bloop, bloop. And it actually pushes that hard, solid stuff apart. If you come across a road that's not been maintained or used for 20 years, it's, it's fragmenting. Here, this frost does it as well. So that's another process. But when it happens out of little green things, it's quite amazing. Or, or that a little flower can, can find nourishment and sustenance and the dust collecting in a crevice on a concrete wall and flower just as bright and as beautifully as one planted in, you know, top quality organic compost. What does that say to us when we see such things in a moment like that, there can be a sense of really just being touched by... And we, we don't necessarily think about what it means. We don't need to, but if we reflect on it, we contemplate that, we say, oh, something about life's unstoppableness, its regenerative capacity that we feel touched by. And why does it touch us? Because it speaks to something of that in ourselves that's equally true. That regenerative capacity, that ability for something soft and tender to open in the midst of aridity, hardness. And around here we might sometimes see bulbs that, you know how cold it gets in the ground? And yet the bulbs in the, in the winter sit there, frozen it must be. They must be frozen down there. They're not that far under the ground. It's cold. I have a down jacket and it's cold. Those, those little fellas get wrapped in ice. And then spring comes and whew, out come the daffodils. Or the snowdrops or whatever it is that pops up around here. So one of the aspects of the experience for me of really reflecting on, exploring, allowing oneself to be open to the natural world, to, to being part of it, is to see how we, we kind of hold ourselves as somehow different than this. But we're not. We're not different than this. And when I was young, as I said, I was very easily able to relate to and have some sense of communion with trees. They were, they were easy, but sort of not really with 
insects and animals and people were actually not very easily at all. It was kind of like they were complicated, difficult, and usually, or quite often, not friendly. I didn't feel at ease in the midst of that kind of human social world much at all. And one of the things that I've I've seen in the in the years of practice and just watched the unfoldment with some both fascination and delight is seeing how that sense of difference, which I hadn't even conceived to myself or described to myself, often we notice something was there when it goes away. Like, you know, that thing with, with the fridge that's going zzz, and we don't know it's going, but when it stops, we go, <sighs> yeah? Sometimes that's what happens when we understand something. It's not like we even knew what it was we didn't understand or we were doing. We just suddenly, we understand something, we stop doing something, and <sighs> the way in which we settle more fully and deeply into, into this beingness, this life. And so I remember once on a retreat, one of my early retreats, I was walking really mindfully and slowly outside on a concrete path. It was in India. And um, I saw this large stick. It was probably about this long, moving towards me. And I was like, what's happening? I stopped and I looked. And the stick was moving towards me. And I just took a moment to check the wind. Could it be being blown to it? And no, the stick was moving. So I looked and I saw this ant. It was about this big. The stick was about this big. And the ant was moving and it was like... <laughs> I mean, actually, I, I don't know what it was doing, but that's what it looked like it was doing to me. Because it was like, whoa, that would be like me carrying a tree about, you know, the size of one of those calories. Those calories, you know, they, they grow to quite a size. And I just had this sense of, whoa, that little guy. You know, I thought my retreat was hard. <laughs> but that little guy, he's working so hard. And it was just this immense sense of fellow feeling for an ant. And I don't think I'd ever had that before. I was like, wow. And then... This is not entire, my, intended to be a blow-by-blow blow account of my retreat history, but <laughs> it was some years later. I was at a retreat in England at Guy House, and there was a robin. And English robins are a little smaller than the robins here, but similarly cheeky and friendly, and red-breasted too. And I was just offering it some crumbs on the table and watching it as it did. I was really quite still. And it was quite still. And I thought mostly I was, this was something nice to offer it to see if it would take it out of my hand. And then I actually suddenly saw, really saw, the robin. And I saw that it wanted that crumb. It wanted that crumb. It wanted it. And it was terrified. It was absolutely terrified for its life because there was this great big monster there. <laughs> and in there, I felt this immense compassion. It's like, yeah, sometimes I really want things and I'm really scared too. Sometimes I really want things and I'm really scared too. Do we recognize that? Sometimes. And I thought, oh, it's all very nice for me to get a robin to eat out of my hand, but I put the crumbs down and just let them have it. You know, enjoy it. I'm not sure I actually want to even train this little guy to take crumbs out of someone's hands because not everyone might be quite so caring about them. 
But again, it was like, wow, this pull of wanting and the pressure of fear. And it's right there in this little creature, right there in its eyes. And it was like it was on this like supercharged spring or rubber bands. It was both pulled and pushed at the same time. You could feel it's almost like, well, it could tear it apart. We sometimes feel that, don't we? It's like the, the conflict in us, the pull. Oh. Oh. Just, oh. <coughs> Just coming into, into our life, into the reality of what it is to be human. Starting to see that, wow, not so different than than a robin. And some years later again, it was a mosquito that I was watching as I went <laughs> and watching it. And then at some point I started to think, what's that mosquito doing? It's <laughs> apart from risking its life, um, which is what it is doing, because it's really, you notice? You know, really strong commitment. I really try and hold the fifth pre, uh, the, the first precept, all the precepts, but the fifth precept, what did I say fifth? The first precept, I'm a bit tired. Um, the first precept to not harm any living beings. And yet, when a mosquito lands and starts to sting or bite, there's this whole tension that builds up that just, you know, <laughs> precept be damned, I want that thing gone. <laughs> And I could feel that if I didn't really pay attention, I could... And I might not be too upset in that moment if I managed to prevent it ever coming back. Just feeling that, seeing that. And then seeing that this <coughs> mosquito, this, it's actually the females that take blood. And that, in a way, this little being is looking for food for her babies. And she's risking her life for it. That's what she's doing. And then suddenly a whole different thing starts to happen. It's like, oh, hey, actually I've got plenty of this stuff. <laughs> you can have a couple of drops. That's all you need. And it's not because of some grand gesture of mindful sort of loving kindness or compassion, just when one sees how close one is to that. This one's, the other one was, you know, risking its life for its food. But this one, it's, it's actually really, it's not just for itself it wants this. It wants it for its whole, you know, family or family to be. But it's much the same thing really. Experiences like that can cut right through, like just the sense that we and what we call they are really as different as we have imagined or believed. And we're all doing what we can, sometimes putting ourselves at risk, pulled by that longing and wanting, held back by fear. We're all doing that in different ways. So important to honour that in ourselves, that we're doing what we can here, that we do make mistakes. Sometimes we get hurt in the process. 
And yet that's somehow part of the learning and the growing. And all living beings participate in this. We're in this with all beings together. When we see that we're not so different, again, it's perhaps easier to just accept the limitations, the imperfections, the compromises, the, the failures. So that inevitably part of your life, of my life, of our lives and every life. And we can start to sense more the, that being part of something larger, we have a place in it all being connected. We have a place in it all. And that our, this, this body we have is something precious, just as each body is precious. Something unique in particular. Not ours in any permanent sense of ownership, but in a certain way the one we have to take care of. The one that the caring that's here in this location needs to take care of, together with others as well. And yet in that caring for it and honouring it, equally honouring all the others too. And seeing of course that, you know, this body, it isn't our own in a very real sense. It's not just through seeing the emptiness of self, we can understand that, seeing that there isn't an owner here somehow separate from all of this life unfolding. But we can also reflect on the fact that in fact this body is inhabited by not just me, but hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of other organisms. You know that, don't you? This isn't news to you. This body is occupied by bacteria, billions and trillions, and other organisms. If this body was a democracy, we wouldn't get voted in power. <laughs> and if we think about it, we're dependent upon quite a number of those organisms to survive, just to be able to digest food. So how might we relate to this body from that perspective? To see it's something precious, it's a home for us. And yet not just for us. Just as this world is a home for us, but not just for us. In that spirit, I always think of Rio Khan, who uh, Eugene mentioned, I think, a couple of nights ago, or maybe at some other point, I'm not quite sure anymore. Something nice about a tired mind. It goes all soft around the edges. You're going to kind of sort of like a bath. It's like, ah. But as long as you know what things it can do and what things it can't, then it's really fine. So sometime recently, Eugene mentioned Rio Khan, and he's also a, a favorite uh, teacher of mine. And one of the stories I love about Rio Khan, he was, uh, he was observed on a cool, but sunny winter's morning, one day, taking the lice out of his robe and putting them on a rock in the sun to warm themselves. 
like, wow. And even more amazingly, at the end of the day, he was observed picking them up and putting them back in his robe. (laughs) And you wonder, what was in that guy's heart? And yet maybe we know. Maybe we know. Rio Khan also said once, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So what is it to sense and to know that just this, just this, just this, just this? Has been in our hearts since before the beginning of time. Our mind, in its thinking function, and its conceiving and describing, likes to stand apart from the world and the body. It allows for a sense of tidiness, organization, control, and security. But the truth of our life is not apart from any of that. And in fact, there's a profound pain in standing apart and holding ourselves different than what is around us. There's a profound suffering in this. And as we start to feel and sense that what this is, because I spoke about trees and plants and identifying, connecting with them, and then insects and creatures, and I had some, I won't have time, I realize, for talking about puppies, which have been a major part of my retreat unfoldment over the years. There was a point where I realized that somehow the only piece that I still thought was separate was human beings. They're obviously different. And of course me, within them, even more so. And yet, at a cellular level, we can see again and feel and sense. So we can, with a reflective capacity, a contemplative capacity, invite this mind that somehow feels or imagines itself or ourself different, separate. We can invite ourselves to see what is this that's here? What is this that's here that Rios Khan says is just this? At an elemental, at a cellular level, these bodies are made of food grown in the earth of water and fire from the sun and earth and water and fire and carbon dioxide from the air that allows plants to grow, that forms nourishment for these bodies and other bodies 
Do we see how this is so? That the very food that we eat becomes this body? Cannot be separated from it? That the very food that was on your plate at supper time? We think of it was outside, something other, food, me and food. And then at some point it's inside and it's in our belly. And if it comes back out, we're pretty sure it's not me. It's not very pleasant. I hope it doesn't. But somewhere along there, it becomes this thing. Slowly, but inevitably, a good proportion of what comes in becomes this thing. A little bit of it goes all the way through and drops out. And yet this is the process, the cycle. This body, really, it's made of that stuff. And that stuff is made of all the stuff around us. And eventually all this stuff that we call our body is going to end up as part of that stuff again. And it might seem for a brief period in the middle that we're somehow organized separately from it. But really, are we? I mean, what is this body? In some ways, it's just another natural thing, isn't it? Sort of kind of lovely or special or important, we might imagine, but at another level, it's just a hollow tube. You hold at one end, hold at the other. And it's got some rather, rather remarkable, wonderful appendages attached that are mostly involved with uh, on the top, figuring out where the food is and using the legs to get it and grab it and eat it. And the other bits for grabbing food and running away from things that might want to turn us into food. And so this bit on the top works out which of those two things we should do. Shall I eat it or run away from it? And the other bits help it do that. There's a couple of other bits for making more of these tubes. That's it. Nothing to get too excited about. Remarkable in its complexity and the fact that it works at all. You know, even though some bits of it maybe don't work perfectly, and as years go on, less bits of it work even half perfectly, but the fact that it's still going, when you think about it, wow. And you know, where's the inside? Because if we think about the inside of this, we think this is inside and everything else is outside, but the inside of this is actually a hollow tube. And what's inside there? That's the inside. Now, are we that? Not really, no. Actually, there's a hollow tube. So the outside gets in, goes all the way through, and comes out. Just imagine if it was a bit bigger and we were just a little bit around the outside and it was a big hole. <laughs> would we think, would we think, you know, and, and the wind blew through as it does. Would we think of ourselves separate from what was going through? If it was just a slight different proportion? Have you ever, sadly, before I really knew any better, I guess, in science at school, they got us to cut up worms. You know what you find inside a worm? It's full of earth. It's a little worm. It's like a hollow tube. It doesn't have so many appendages. It goes through the earth. It's got earth all around it, and it's full of it. <laughs> it's more obvious for, with a worm. You see, wow, this thing's not that different than what it's in. These bodies that breathe the air that feel that grow that sneeze 
Nobody sneeze? It's remarkable, you know? Have you ever tried to do a sneeze? The air gets projected out at something like 120 miles an hour. <laughs> Probably minus 30. <laughs> but when the body wants to remove what it thinks is an obstruction in the air passages, because this is about survival, sneezing is about survival, it does it with remarkable efficiency. It's a bit annoying if you're trying to be silent sitting in a meditation hall, not disturbing your neighbours. But if you really let the thing go, wow, it's great. And it's like it does it by itself. The intelligence in this thing is amazing, remarkable. So what happens to us if we don't hold ourselves apart? we invite the mind to soften its habitual perceptions and views and positions and just start to tune into the felt sense in which there aren't so many boundaries where there isn't so much this and that but simply this and this and this and this and this this too just this. It's all this. There isn't any that. And we might feel the sense of our body and that, you know, if we put our hands on the, the curves of the tissue, it's like, it's not so different than the hills and the valleys of the landscapes around us and the hair that grows in our head. It's, it's like the grass that grows. <coughs> and the grass that gets mown as well for some of us. <laughs> and tears. Not so different than the rain that falls, that washes through the air and the earth. And that sometimes when we find the tears coming through us, that they have a sense of washing us. We can feel that. And the blood that runs in our body, like rivers, on the earth. Can we imagine ourselves so different, really, than everything around us? This sensitivity this openness, this undefinableness that we're exploring, that we're encountering. There's a boundlessness to it and an unbounderedness. There are no boundaries in it. There's no place where one thing stops and another begins ultimately. There's just this. There's just this. And there's a profound, there's a profound healing and wholeness and holiness 
And all those words come from the same root. A healing and a wholeness and a holiness that is revealed. When we don't hold anything apart or other, not ourself, anything or anyone else. And in that wholeness there is peace. In that holiness there is beauty. And it's just this, all of it. So may we all, in our practice and through our lives, come to deepen in that sensitivity that resonates with life. May we come to know more and more deeply our profound connectedness. And may we live in peace with all things for our own well-being and liberation, for the well-being and the liberation of all beings, of all of life.
So please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.